It is easy and arguably correct to laugh at conspiracy theorists. They are, by and large, ridiculous people who believe loads of obviously mad stuff. However, because there are so many of them doing their own research online into the small hours, tinfoil hats perched atop fevered brows, we are regrettably obliged to take conspiracy theories very seriously indeed. Polls in the United States, for example, have suggested that nearly a fifth of Americans believe in at least some of the mythology attached to QAnon, a modern conspiracy theory as sprawling as it is ludicrous. Consider just two stories which have dominated global headlines of late. A former actual president of the United States is seeking re-election on the basis of an altogether unevidenced conspiracy theory that the previous election was stolen from him. A major war is occurring in Europe, substantially on the basis of an equally demented fantasy that anybody is plotting to menace Russia from its west. And recently in the United States, as if these paranoid legions didn't have enough to work with, congressional hearings have been taking place into one of the most lurid conspiracy theories of all. The proposition that we are not being told the truth about such contact as we earthlings may have had from extraterrestrial life. Why do so many people persist in believing the incredible? How dangerous can it be? And is there anything that might be done about it? This is The Foreign Desk. The people look around themselves and say, I am overwhelmed, the world's too complicated, you know, I don't really have a lot of agency. But now, through this, you know, set of beliefs, I am empowered. I know the news first. I know things. I am powerful. And it's a real draw for people who feel helpless. But I do think that sense of agency and significance that QAnon and other conspiracies give people is a big thing because suddenly, you know, I think a lot of an interview I saw with a QAnon believer who said, because of QAnon, I know the news before it happens. It's my neighbors think, you know, you might say, oh, this Trump indictment, this is the news. But I know the real truth. And I know that really this is a cover up for X. And so it gives you this sense of intelligence, this idea that you have the gravitas of a soldier and you're saving children. I mean, what more noble calling could there be? But all you have to do is get online. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. I'm Andrew Muller. Last week's US congressional hearings into UFOs, or as the modern terminology has it, UAPs, i.e. unexplained anomalous phenomena, were indeed pretty bracing stuff. Joining us first of all from Washington, D.C. is Marina Corrin, a science journalist and staff writer at The Atlantic. Marina, first of all, what did we actually learn from these hearings that we can take to the bank? Right. I'm going to say not much. I'll start with what we did not learn, which is we did not learn that aliens have visited Earth. UFOs or UAPs, whatever you want to call them, are just that. They are unidentified flying objects that we cannot immediately identify. So there was no big reveal, no aha moment, no groundbreaking perspective shifting proof that UFOs are of alien origin, which I think is what some people expect anytime there's a congressional hearing. You think, oh, you know, Congress is weighing in. They're bringing in witnesses. Surely this means aliens are real. Congress holds hearings all the time. And that type of setting is not going to be the setting, I think, that we discover for the very first time that proof of, you know, some other alien civilization. 
One of the figures at the centre of these hearings was David Grush, this former US Air Force officer and intelligence official. If he didn't actually brandish any evidence that the corpses of aliens are stacked up in a warehouse in Area 51, what did he actually say and, and how plausible was he? So David Grush is a former military intelligence officer. He has many years of experience working for the military, but he has not actually seen with his own eyes, any of the evidence that he was walking lawmakers through. You know, he told them that the American government has spent decades secretly recovering alien wreckage, what they believe to be something of non-human origin from the ground. He told Congress that the American military has even tried to reverse engineer some of the mysterious technology that they've found for their own purposes. And he said that all of this is happening without any congressional oversight. I mean, he even said that he knows of colleagues that have become physically injured, allegedly by both these non-human UFOs and people within the government. But again, he made clear to Congress that he has not seen any of this with his own eyes, that he is relaying the facts as they have been told to him. I think that's important to know here. And I want to be careful in talking about David Grush because I have not interviewed him myself. And all I've seen is what the public saw at this hearing. But what's important to note is that he has said that the Pentagon has cleared him to speak publicly about these things, to say these things. But that only means that his remarks don't contain classified information. That doesn't mean that what he is saying is true. We haven't seen any pictures, any solid evidence. We are just being asked to take this person at his word. How hard is it to report on a hearing like this and a subject like this and keep the appropriate perspective? Because on the one hand, this is obviously absolute catnip for conspiracy theorists. This is one of the er conspiracy theories. But on the other hand, and this is where any reporter's instinct must start twitching, if a fraction of any of this was true, it would be the single biggest story of all time. How do you find a balance between those? Yeah, it is an interesting challenge. I definitely try to lead with fairness. I'm very aware that David Gresh, you know, whether you want to believe what he's saying or not, he is going before Congress and putting his name on the line. And he did talk about how he has gotten a lot of blowback from going public with these claims, that he gets threatening phone calls, that he's received death threats. So I think as a reporter, it's important to be sympathetic to the people that you're covering in this kind of story, you know, even if what they're saying might not be true, right? So leading with empathy, I think, helps. But yeah, like you said, if UFOs are of alien origin, that would be a huge story. Personally, I would love for that to be the story because that, I'm a space reporter, that's my shot at a Pulitzer. (laughs) (laughs) And so I do think, you know, ask any astronomer and they will tell you that probably there is life beyond Earth, right? It would be a very lonely existence for us here on Earth if this is it, right? So we can never rule that possibility out. But the idea that an alien civilization has crossed, you know, the expanse and made it here and keeps popping up in our skies, you know, I think you have to present the unlikelihood of that scenario, right? It is more likely when we discover life beyond Earth that it's going to be in the form of a microbe in an icy moon deeper in the solar system or in the form of a message, some radio transmission that we determine, okay, this can't possibly be terrestrial earthly interference. It is less likely that we discover Earth in the form of a 
of a weird-looking spaceship over Utah. We're going to talk to other guests a bit later in the show about the specifically American strain of conspiracy theorizing. And I'm just wondering if you think that where this specific one is concerned, there is also an element of American exceptionalism in that if you look at maps of UFO sightings around the world, they are massively concentrated in the United States, hugely disproportionately. And I know it's a big country and there's a lot of you, but if these maps are accurate, aliens are taking a vastly disproportionate interest in this one nation. Is there something there in that Americans kind of go around thinking, well, of course they'd come to see us. Who else would they be interested in? Or is it just a thing of Americans having perhaps slightly more active imaginations, which breeds a fondness for conspiracy theories of all kinds? Yeah, I mean, maybe the aliens really like our reality TV shows. They're just (laughs) fascinated. I know you have a few interesting ones, too, but the American strain might be really compelling to them. I think that American conspiracy thinking is definitely a certain type of strain, right? That conspiracy thinking is not an American thing, but it is interesting in the way that it plays out in this country. And research suggests that conspiracy thinking is not actually getting worse in the modern day United States, but we are in an acute moment of public curiosity and I think acceptance of conspiracism, right? Like after years of QAnon theories, like claims of vaccine microchips, stolen elections, right? And I also wonder, and I'm still kind of thinking through this idea of like why maybe more Americans than other people are interested in UFOs, is I think that the United States is, you know, historically a very religious Christian nation. There is a lot of faith involved in that. And I think there is a lot of faith involved in UFOs. You know, some really strong belief in UFO kind of reminds me of like belief in something bigger than ourselves, belief in God, belief in, you know, more religious themes. And if Americans are more predisposed to having that type of faith, they might also be more inclined to believe that UFOs are of alien origin. Marina, thank you. That was Marina Corrin speaking to us from Washington, D.C. You're listening to The Foreign Desk. You're listening to The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, and joining me now from Washington, D.C. is Will Sommer, a media reporter at The Washington Post and author of Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America. And from Rhode Island, we have Tom Nichols, staff writer at The Atlantic and author of The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters, and Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. Will, I'll start with you. People, I think, tend to associate America with conspiracy theory culture more than they do most other countries. Is there actually something different about the US and conspiracy theories, or is it just that, as is so very often the way with America, the rest of us just have to hear all about it? (laughs) I think that's a great question. I mean, I I do think there is, in America, I think there's sort of a, a penchant for conspiracy theories. I think we have a very built up conspiracy theory apparatus. 
at the same time, really all over the world, you know, we see in polling that conspiracy theories about vaccines or the earth being flat, all these different things have taken root really all across the world. So I think it's fair to say most cultures, I think, have a pretty sizable conspiracy theory contingent. And perhaps in the United States, it's only because the American sort of presence in the media is so outsized in the world that we hear so much about American conspiracy theories. Because, Tom, one of the reasons we wanted to do this episode this week is because we once again see the spectacle of the former president being indicted on charges which are rooted in many respects in conspiracy theories, in particular his adherence to and transmission of this conspiracy theory that the 2020 election was stolen. Do you think that Trump and the people around him, the politicians who support him, the media that enable him, do they actually believe any of that? My experience even talking with some of these folks is that they are a great example of doublethink, that on the one hand, they know it's crazy. On the other hand, they're so far up the tree of needing to believe it that it's almost like they can hold both things in their head at the same time. But I think that at very senior levels, when you're talking about co-conspirators one, two, three, four, five, and six, as we found in Jack Smith's indictment this week, I don't think any of those people believed any of that. And in fact, that's partly what helps a conspiracy theory spread more effectively is that you have some people at the top who know exactly what they're doing. They know how to kind of massage and model the theory so that it's really attractive to the mass audience, but they themselves don't buy it. I also think that for some conspiracy theories, and I I just want to echo what Will said about other countries, we just hear more about them in the United States. I mean, if you spend time in a place like Russia, Russia is the gold medal champion for crazy conspiracy theories compared to the United States. You just don't see a lot of it coming out of their press. I think, too, we can't underestimate that conspiracy theories are driven by a huge amount of narcissism that is really rampant, particularly in American society, where people not only believe conspiracy theories because it makes them feel important, right? Like I'm the guy that's unlocked the Da Vinci code, you know, but also there's attention seeking involved. And your question about, do they really believe it? I think that a lot of people who claim to believe the earth is flat don't really believe the earth is flat because they don't act as if it is. They still take airplanes that rely on the earth being round. But what they really want is for someone to argue with them for three hours about it because they're lonely. They want some interaction and they just want, they want to say something outrageous so that three people sitting here will say, gosh, why are they like this? Let's talk to them some more. So I think that it's a combination of all of those things. But the bottom line is that with the kind of Trump conspiracy theories, it's very clear that the people at the top don't believe any of this stuff. Well, this is where I want to bring in your experience with dealing with QAnon, which does have, in many respects, I think certain of the precepts of a new religious faith about it. Do you think it makes more sense to think about them in those terms in the same way that a great many Christians might say they believe in Noah's Ark or other biblical miracles, but they probably don't actually believe that it literally happened? These are things to which you need to subscribe if this is your crowd? You know, that's a great question. I mean, I think religion is a useful lens to look at QAnon. I mean, I I don't think it's the only one, but I think 
there is that aspect of, you know, certainly, I mean, there is like, you know, straightforward, just a very intense religious devotion to it. There is a lot of crossover with evangelical and charismatic Christianity. A lot of people get into it because they already believe that the devil is like a real guy and he's out there in the world and that by joining up with QAnon, you're fighting him. But in terms of the idea that, you know, maybe they don't believe every aspect of it or maybe they don't believe it literally. I mean, I do think there is some of that in that QAnon believers tend to say, well, maybe I believe in this part that really resonates with me. I believe in that literally. But, you know, often they'll they'll sort of maybe look at a fellow believer and be like, you know, my stuff about Hillary Clinton eating kids, that's serious and real. But this guy who thinks John F. Kennedy Jr. faked his death, that guy's just silly. And so there is that aspect of it, too. But, you know, I do think that we should understand that for the most part, I mean, QAnon believers do really seriously believe most of the tenets. I mean, they think that the world elites are drinking children's blood in satanic rituals, and they think that someday Donald Trump will institute a sort of fascist dictatorship, which they like, you know, they like that idea, and bring about a utopia. So, you know, while on the edges, they might disagree with one another about things or kind of brush it aside, I think when it comes to really the core tenets of QAnon, I mean, people believe in it enough to murder people, enough to commit other crimes, and on January 6th, enough to die for it. Is there an aspect of the appeal, Tom, which is also rooted in the fact that it's kind of fun to believe in this stuff, or at least more fun than actually doing the work involved in learning anything about how the world actually works, a great deal of which is extremely complex and actually quite dull? Absolutely. Part of what drives a lot of our politics today is affluence and boredom. Life is simply not interesting enough. And if you combine that with narcissism, where it says, you know, your life should be interesting, you're very important, you're meant to unravel gigantic pedophile conspiracies, then you really have very fertile ground for conspiracy theories, especially if you don't have anything else in your life. Because now life is interesting, life has meaning, life has a purpose and a mission and a crusade. Interestingly enough, there's also a lot of people in the conspiracy movement, and Will can probably speak to this better than I can, but who come out of the health and wellness and kind of yoga and new age crystals crowd. These were not all like rural right wingers. Like you've got a bunch of yoga instructors now but again, I think all of that represented a search for meaning, a search for spiritual belonging in a very atomized and lonely and self-centered age. Conspiracy theories are the perfect balm. They're a wonderful tribe to join. All you have to do is believe you know, really crazy stuff and internalize that to be part of a global community. Will, did you find elements of that among the QAnon adherents, this thing of them, as Tom puts it, having nothing much else going on in their lives? Because conspiracy theories can also provide you with the perfect excuse for your own failures and your own shortcomings. I couldn't possibly succeed. The deep state has conspired against me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a big aspect of it for a lot of people. I mean, I think their backgrounds often vary. And, you know, you hit at this issue of this idea of people who come in through yoga and wellness through this kind of like crunchier identity, not what we would think of as typical Trump supporters. And so the background's often different, but I do think that sense of agency and significance that QAnon and other conspiracies give people is a big thing because suddenly, you know, I think a lot of an interview I saw with a QAnon believer who said, because of QAnon, I know the news before it happens. And so my neighbors think, you know, you might say, oh, this Trump indictment, this is the news, but I know the real truth. And I know that really this is a cover up for X. And so it gives you this sense of intelligence 
or that you have wisdom that your neighbors don't. And it gives you a mission. You know, they call themselves digital soldiers. So this idea that you have the gravitas of a soldier and you're saving children. I mean, what more noble calling could there be? But all you have to do is get online. It's empowerment. I mean, look, Richard Hofstetter wrote about this 60 years ago, that people look around themselves and say, I am overwhelmed. The world's too complicated. You know, I don't really have a lot of agency. But now through this, you know, set of beliefs, I am empowered. I know the news first. I know things. I am powerful. And it's a real draw for people who feel helpless. Well, on that thought, Tom, and this is a notion that you may struggle with, but are, are there any grounds for sympathy for people who get sucked down these rabbit holes? Because you can see how you could get there, that you have mistrust in the government, which may be justified because sometimes governments do do bad and terrible things. They enact stupid and terrible ideas they have concocted in secret. People might have a more generalised anxiety about, for example, medicines and doctors, which tilt them towards anti-vaxxism. Are there any grounds for compassion on those fronts? No. <laughs> but let me back up and say that, you know, for people who are anxious about vaccines, yes, they have questions and doctors should answer them. Is this vaccine safe? Yes. Same questions I ask my doctor whenever he gives me a prescription. What are the side effects? What do I need to look out for here? What are the risks of this medication? That's very different from dealing with a cult. And let's just take the substance of these conspiracy theories aside for a moment. I guess the question would be, if you had a friend who joined a cult and was, you know, breaking ties with their family and believing terrible things and making accusations against their parents or their brothers or their sisters or their friends, how much sympathy would you have? And I think, you know, the best answer to that is that you have tough love. You say, well, I care about this person, but... No, I'm not having this conversation. No, I'm not going to grant that, you know, because you are uncertain about politics, therefore, maybe it is true that Hillary Clinton drinks the blood of toddlers. Um, <laughs> you just can't go down that road. You have to say, look, you're wrong. You're in a cult. This is not a conversation we can have until you're out of it. Well, it's a related thought, and this is, I think, a, a commonality between conspiracy theorists and out-and-out -out members of out-and-out -out cults, is that almost nothing will deter them from believing what they have chosen to believe. And again, QAnon in particular, Will, there has been a sequence of prophecies. You know, Q keeps telling us that these things will happen, or QAnon's believers convince themselves that these things will happen. None of them ever do. Did you come across any examples of people realizing maybe the fourth or fifth time they'd been up the mountaintop, you know, awaiting Armageddon and it hadn't happened and it had to trudge back down the mountain that maybe none of this was actually going to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. There are not a ton of examples of people coming out of QAnon, but often it is when sort of something personal to them, what they thought of as a bit of QAnon evidence is disproven. And so sometimes it's because they have a particular expertise in a field, maybe they're an engineer or something like that. And then they see QAnon or see Q, the sort of clue giver behind QAnon, say something wrong that they know is wrong. And then they say, well, I wonder what else Q might be wrong about. There was another example of a QAnon guy who one of the big bits of QAnon evidence was that Q predicted that Trump would say the phrase tippy top at the White House Easter egg roll. And so then this video, someone's 
package this as a video and it got a million views because then Trump does say tippy top at the Easter egg roll. And so they thought, wow, you know, this is proof that Q is working for Trump and their best friends. So there was a QAnon believer who really got into this. And then he saw another video that shows that Trump says this phrase all the time. And so it's not hard to predict that Trump will say a phrase like huge, right? Or tell a story about someone calling him sir. And so these these are relatively easy things to predict. And so for this QAnon believer, this was sort of a big moment where they they realized, wait, is QAnon fake? Tom, you were talking about the necessity to not descend to interacting with these people and not trying to approach their arguments on their own terms. You could do that with the notional family member or friend who had joined a cult easily enough. Can you do that, though, with the numbers we are talking about here? Because this is not really a fringe thing in the United States. The smallest number of people who would, for example, cheerfully attempt to re-elect Donald Trump, it must be at least 50 or 60 million of your fellow Americans who must therefore, at some level, believe this patently absurd conspiracy theory about the election. Yeah, I don't think you can even do it with family. I don't even think you can do it on the micro level with people that are in cults. I mean, I'm not a professional cult guy, but I think to try and do that, you simply reinforce a lot of their beliefs. Like, you know, if you're willing to take an hour to argue with me, I must be right. (laughs) And I think, you know, again, the only way that this happens, I've been wondering if there might be a hive collapse, you know, that suddenly there's some issue where enough people at enough at the right time simply say this can't be true. You know, when you were talking, Andrew, about the people who don't stop, no matter how many times the prophecy fails, there was this movement called the Millerites, who, you know, their leader was always predicting the end of the world. And, and you know, he'd say, oh, I was right, just got my calendar wrong. And eventually, you know, people said, you know, this is nonsense. And I just wonder if something similar will happen. But I, Again, I doubt it in part because some of the people that are the deepest into this, the Trump conspiracies, are older people who are simply not going, you know, that I think once you're past 55 or 60, and I say this as somebody who's past 60, a lot of those folks are just never going to stop believing this in some way. Whether they will keep voting that way or participating in public life, I don't know. But I think at this point, Q himself could step out from the shadows and say, yeah, I'm that, you know, I'm a guy in the Philippines or, you know, South Africa or wherever. And this was all a hoax. And they'd say, yeah, but you were really onto a truth. They would just keep believing it because they have to, because otherwise the vacuum at the center of their lives is too much to endure. And, Will, what do you think? I'm irresistibly reminded of an aphorism, I think, of the late Christopher Hitchens, that you cannot reason people out of something that they did not reason themselves into. Do you foresee any peak followed by a trough in conspiracy theory believing, or or are we just stuck with it? I think for the short term, I think we are stuck with it, or maybe the long term, a couple decades, I think. I mean, I I think the particular name of the movement might change. I think, for example, we've seen QAnon believers, they were told by Q that the sort of the QAnon brand had been tarnished because people were recognizing them as crazy people. So they should rebrand as something else while still holding to their core beliefs. You know, we saw this before with Pizzagate, which was sort of a QAnon precursor changing into QAnon. So I think this idea of conspiracy theories and this kind of social media enabled conspiracy theory thinking is going to be with us for a while. And, you know, absent just some seismic political shift, I don't think that's going to change.
Tom Nichols and Will Sommer, thank you both very much for joining us here on the Foreign Desk. Tom and Will's latest books, respectively Our Own Worst Enemy and Trust the Plan, are both available now in a bookstore near you. This is the Foreign Desk on Monocle Radio, and I'm joined finally by Professor Sir Richard Evans, a British historian of modern Germany and modern Europe, who formerly served as Regius Professor of History and Director of the Conspiracy and Democracy Project at the University of Cambridge. Sir Richard is the author of more than 20 books, including, most pertinently to this discussion, The Hitler Conspiracies, The Third Reich, and The Paranoid Imagination. He joins me now from Cambridge. Uh, Sir Richard, we have have been talking a lot in this episode about the peculiarly American strain of conspiracy theory thinking, but this is very much a global problem, isn't it? That's right, it is. And it goes back a very long way. You can go back all to the Roman Republic and Cicero's polemic against the Catiline conspiracy, which may or may not have been a real one. So conspiracy theories of been basically there right back to the Neanderthals sitting in their caves and one would say look what are those chaps up to you know so it's the idea that everything that happens happens because somebody intends it to happen that nothing much happens really by chance and there are groups of people two or more people who are plotting it all in secret in some kind of malign or illegal or illicit way that's really a conspiracy theory it's a way of explaining things and of course it's been much more widespread in the last 20 years not just america but many other places at all why do you think it is that it has become more widespread? One, one might hope that as the arc of human enlightenment continued to bend ideally in a positive direction, that we would believe this stuff less rather than more. Well, I see that you're a Victorian at heart and you believe in progress <laughs> or even an enlightenment person of the 18th century. And I'm afraid the experience of the last several decades going back to World War One has shown that Really, we have to question the idea that humanity is becoming more intelligent and more perspicacious, more understanding over time. So and that's one of the great shocks of the 21st century so far, that right across the world there have been what we call populist leaders, leaders who believe that the political system of democracy in which they operate is one that's basically run from behind the scenes by the elites and that's where conspiracy theories really come in. And in addition to that, of course, there's the rise of the Internet. It used to be when we learned facts and ideas and interpretations from books and from uh, radio and TV and from articles and magazines, we really had gatekeepers of opinion, as you might call them, people like editors and producers of radio programs and so on, who would filter out what they thought were the wackiest or even uh, the most dangerous ideas. And they've now gone. They've all been bypassed by the Internet. And whatever attempts Internet providers have made to, as it were, filter out things, they can't. They really can't do it. So the Internet has become a kind of playground for conspiracy theorists and purveyors of extraordinary, strange and deeply implausible, unfounded ideas. And we can see that, particularly in America, of course, because that's where the internet has a lot of power. There's some African countries where 
the internet is not so powerful, but in America and across Europe and many parts of Asia and, and indeed in North Africa, South Africa and so on, right across the world, there are conspiracy theories. There are people who say, well, no, the explanation, what they call the official explanation, as if experts were somehow steered by this conspiracy of governments and official media as if they are all fooling us. There's probably, nevertheless, pre-internet, though it is, no period in human history which more demonstrates the dangers of this kind of thinking than Nazi Germany, which you, you have written extensively about. Your book, The Hitler Conspiracies, does talk a lot about how conspiracy theory is used to explain Nazism. But I, I, I did want to ask about the uses of conspiracy theory, the Reichstag fire, I'm sure, most obviously, in establishing Nazism. How important was it to the Nazis? in building their base and to what extent did they did they deliberately make use of the power of conspiracy theories you can divide conspiracy theories into two kinds what you might call systemic conspiracy theories and then event conspiracy theories so the event conspiracy theory tries to explain was a kind of pseudo explanation of an event as the outcome of a conspiracy the systemic conspiracy theory is one that covers large amounts of space and time. And the Nazis went in for both. So in terms of systemic conspiracy theory, of course, that was at the heart of their murderous, genocidal anti-Semitism. The Nazis clearly really did believe that the Jews across the world were inclined by heredity, in their nature, to undermine civilization and in particular to undermine Germany. And that's really the theory behind their perpetration of the Holocaust. No Jew was safe. No Jew could possibly be a friend of Germany. And since the Nazis saw everything in racial terms, they put them in ghettos and then camps and then exterminated some six million. So that's the, the kind of core belief of Nazism. And then there are some Nazi event conspiracy theories not as many as you might think. So Stalin, for example, in Soviet Russia, was a, an inveterate, obsessive conspiracy theorist. Everything that went wrong in Stalin's Russia, he ascribed to the evil machinations of traitors and saboteurs, a lot of whom, of course, were his colleagues, who he got rid of by saying that they've been trying to undermine the Communist Party ever since they joined it. And he purged them and, again, murderous discrimination against them, putting them in the gulag, at the camps, and then executing very large numbers of them. The event conspiracy theory that really made the running in Nazi Germany was based on an event that happened 28th of February 1933. That's when Hitler was already, for the best part of a month, chancellor, head of the government, but I have to remember, he never got more than just over a third of the votes in any free election at all. So he needed to convert that head of government position into a dictatorship. And on that night in February, the Reichstag, the parliament building in Berlin, was burned down. And immediately the Nazis said, well, that must be because of a communist plot. I mean, the communists were a big, big force in the late Weimar Republic and the democracy mm. that the Nazis wanted to overthrow. And so he used that as an excuse to order the arrest, imprisonment, torture and murder of very large numbers of German communists and the leading figures. 
But there's a kind of counter theory, which was by the communists themselves. They said, no, 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 it must be the Nazis who, who started it. And that's a theory that's been dragged up again and again and again. Again, it's this belief that everything that happens must happen because of somebody wants it to happen. And so there's no evidence really to show that the Nazis were involved in any way. There's another question about conspiracy theories that the Nazi period prompts. And it's rare that you encounter somebody who only believes in one conspiracy theory. When you, when you believe in one, you tend to believe in several, if not all of them. But they all seem to gravitate towards one particular thing. And do you think it is the case that if you pull on the thread of most of them long enough, you will encounter a core of anti-Semitism at the end of it? That's certainly true. I mean, people who believe in one conspiracy theory often believe in others. There's even been some opinion polling done that shows that people who believe that Princess Diana, Diana, Princess of Wales, was murdered by MI6 at the behest of the uh, late Duke of Edinburgh, uh, also believe that she's still alive. So (laughs) some conspiracy theories hold two completely contradictory views on conspiracy theories. And It's also true that there's a lot of anti-Semitism if you scratch the surface. Of course, some conspiracy theories don't have a lot to do with it. If Think about the theory that the moon landings in 1969 took place in a Hollywood studio. I can't see much anti-Semitism in that. I suppose I may be wrong. If you scratch a conspiracy theory hard enough, you'll find it's anti-Semitic. And that's certainly true, for example, in theories peddled by the people who support what's called QAnon, the idea that Hillary Clinton, leading Democrats in the United States, film stars and many others are engaged in a paedophile ring for exploiting, sexually exploiting young people, most young boys. Scratch that and you'll find it's anti-Semitic. And of course, the figure of George Soros, who is Jewish, is a big bugbear in Hungary, the Viktor Orban, the, the, the Hungarian leaders constantly ascribing all sorts of inequities to George Soros operating by fermenting conspiracies behind the scenes, none of which is true at all. Soros just uses his fortune, which is very considerable, to support liberal and democratic institutions, parties across the world, which Victor Orban doesn't like, and, and saying, and of course, George Soros is Jewish. So you do find uh, a lot of anti-Semitic theories on the surface don't seem to be anti-Semitic, actually. Yes, don't go very far to show that they are. Professor Sir Richard Evans, thank you very much for joining us. Sir Richard's book, The Hitler Conspiracies, is available in a bookshop near you. That's it for this episode of The Foreign Desk. We'll be back next week and look out for The Foreign Desk Explainer, available every Wednesday. The Foreign Desk was produced by Emma Searle and Christy O'Grady. Christy also produces The Foreign Desk Explainer. To contact The Foreign Desk team, you can email emma at es at monocle.com and don't forget to subscribe to Monocle magazine and our free daily email bulletins by heading to our website at monocle.com. From me, Andrew Muller, thank you very much for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.